What's up, guys? Doug Polk here, and welcome back for another episode of the Doug Polk Podcast. Today, we are joined by founder and CEO of CoinFlex. Mark Lamb will be joining us momentarily. Before we jump in and talk to Mark, I want to let you guys know about a podcast we did last week. Taylor KB stopped by. We talked about the glory days of poker and some business investing stuff as well. And of course, CryptoPunks. We've only talked about that six, seven, eight times. I figure what's one more? I'm sure you guys love to hear the latest and greatest on the CryptoPunk news. Actually, he had a punk sell during the podcast. Uh, so that was uh, certainly interesting for him to message me afterwards. Happy for him on that sale. Anyway, before we get into today's podcast as well, I want to let you guys know I am going to be getting married in just about over a week here. So that means I'm going to be gone for my wedding and then my honeymoon and taking a little bit of time off, stepping away from the office for a bit. So it's going to be about three or four weeks with no podcasting goodness here on the channel. I know I'm sure you guys are going to be upset. You, you love hearing my voice every week and I, you find comfort in it, I'm sure. Either way, I will be gone. When I get back, we'll get uh, right back into the, the swing of things with a weekly guest as well. Maybe we'll even throw some more in there at you. So I will be gone until late November. This will be my final podcast until then. All right, moving on. Let's go ahead and introduce today's guest. We are now joined by Mark Lamb. Mark, thank you for joining the podcast today. Great to be here. Uh, I wanted to, to jump in. I wanted to start off with the, the hard-hitting questions right out of the gate here. Uh, have you ever been to Hawaii? I have. What what part you go to? I don't remember. It was ages ago. Wow, that's must have really been something. Something truly memorable, I'm sure. Um, I'm actually going to be getting married in Hawaii, so we're going oh, to. Congrats. Awesome. Thank you. The the island of Maui. Uh, nice. Very nice. Very very relaxing. Um, enjoy yeah. enjoyed the atmosphere there. Went a few years back, and we decided that's where we wanted to uh, tie the knot. So it's the right way to go. It's the right way to go for sure. Yeah, should be should be fun. Little little post wedding. Uh, honeymoon in Bora Bora as well, you know? Oh, that that is definitely the right way to go. Tropical. Yeah. Work on my tan. (laughs) Anyway, so let's go ahead and uh, let's jump into this. So today we wanted to talk about a couple of different subjects, and we're going to kind of break this podcast down into two separate parts. Uh, The first part I want to talk about specifically are Americans getting left behind in regards to a lot of the regulation that we see uh, coming down the pipe Obviously, cryptocurrency, as the market grows, we see more and more legislation and regulation coming at us, a lot more um, talk about cryptocurrency. Is it acceptable? Do we want to protect people from making 8% of their money? Those kinds of conversations. So I want to talk about are Americans getting left behind? And I want to talk about a bunch of different recent news. And then I kind of wanted, in the second half of this podcast, I wanted to do sort of a DeFi intro and overview for a lot of the people that maybe are newer to uh, decentralized finance or cryptocurrency in general, and talk about some of these subjects that might uh, provide them some value. So um, that's going to be kind of the breakdown here, guys, for you today. If you're if you're just tuning in, and uh, let's get let's just kick this off by talking about uh, some of the recent stablecoin news. So um, you know, it, it was almost it, it was fitting because this was the topic we were going to do today. Our Americans getting left behind, and then we see uh, just yesterday we see some news here about. Uh, Regulatory pressure, uh, the SEC gets path to rein in stablecoins as U.S. weighs new rules. So, uh, Mark, did you, did you get a chance to check out the news yesterday and see some of the update on um, what Gary Gensler had to say about stablecoins? Yeah, I mean, we run a stablecoin, FlexUSD, so I, I generally try to keep pretty abreast of um, all the regulatory uh, changes and stuff to, to how stablecoins are being perceived and it, it it's really interesting because on one hand, stablecoins are totally pro-America because they're really a way to proliferate the dollar 
uh, further afield. You know, the, the kind of we we see this here in Asia, like lots of people in in China and other parts of the world, um, you know, are are using Tether uh, as a way to hold value and and store wealth and move move assets and 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 you know, as a result, like that is benefiting the U.S. That's benefiting. Uh, you know the dollar dominance, but but stable coins are also this you know this way where you can do all sorts of things with your money that are not controlled by banks and not controlled by the Fed and you know not maybe not monitored as 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 uh, as much as dollars in a bank and so it's it's kind of this paradox I think um, the U.S. attitude towards towards stable coins and I, I think a lot of regulatory attitudes in the U.S. are are a paradox effectively. When you talk about this being beneficial for the U.S. and that it's pro-America to have these coins now made in the U.S. dollar, do you see that as more of a short-term benefit or more of a long-term one? Because obviously the, the first major stablecoin that we'd be talking about here is Tether, rather USDT, Tether's product. And then, of course, we saw USDC, and then we saw some of these more uh, decentralized products like DAI. These are, of course, all pegged to the U.S. dollar. But we are starting to see european peg euro pegs as well with uh euro tether and then also uh yours i believe it's called the stasis uh euro um stable coin so is this maybe a short-term thing where we're seeing this be pegged to the dollar and over the longer term we will see more of these other currencies and if so does that make it less of a long-term net benefit for uh for america no it's um the euro euro backed stable coins are doomed to fail um, similar to other other ones as well. So so you have like a CNH one, but CNH, which is like offshore Chinese yuan, is really hard to access. There's only one one bank in the world that can really handle CNH. Um, Euros are something which have dipped into negative rates at the at the um, at some countries' levels and 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 are probably going to in, at the ECB level. So once you go into negative rates, the, the business model for a stable coin is ultimately to lend the money out. And once you go into negative real rates of return, um, stable coins have no business model. So it's very hard to get that to work. Uh, you have a similar problem with, with JPY stable coins. Um, KRW is, is massively capital controlled. And at the end of the day, it's a network effect. Dollars are the biggest currency in the world. You know, I, I think long term, the biggest stable coin is going to be Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, because this is a more predictable money supply than dollars. Um, and 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 so with cryptocurrencies, you have a more predictable money supply, and as a result, they can be the true stable coins. Um, but while we don't live in a cryptocurrency denominated world, um, you know, dollars are the are the king of fiat, and I think that's that's just going to remain the case. It's funny that you say that you you. BTC and ETH as stable coins because I actually have a buddy and he's a uh, he's a great developer and a very smart guy, but he's not plugged into any of the crypto world at all from from the social media perspective. He he he's a, more of a developer. He doesn't really care what people are tweeting about. And I asked him about something stablecoin related. He said, "Stablecoins is, is that like Bitcoin and Ethereum?" It's like, uh no, that would not be stablecoins." But maybe maybe he wasn't that far off the entire time. It looks like yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting that you bring up the, the negative rates for euros. So you're basically saying that if they create th- essentially the, the coin that's pegged to the euro, then once they've received the euros back, they can't find ways to profitably invest that. Is that what, you're, what your point to make, you're making? 
They might be able to, but they're going to have to chase crappier and crappier products. And in general, um, the euro is is a bad currency. I mean, it's 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 it has some advantages, like like maybe um, there are some advantages about the European banking system compared to uh, the the U.S. banking system. Uh, you know, I I built an exchange in in uh, the U.K. Coinfloor, and we 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 dealt. Uh, quite extensively with European banks, but I think generally um, dollars are king, you know, and and that's the case in crypto for certain. So uh, until that stops being, you know, in Asia people want dollars, in America people want dollars, and in Europe they might want Europe euros, but who cares? They're not the majority, so uh, they have to deal with do- in dollars, you know, and that's why that's why everything is in dollars. One last comment here on the the dollars versus some of these other currency debate. I've seen a lot of debate over the last several years about the place of the U.S. dollar in the world's ecosystem. Obviously, the dollar has been the the, the world's currency for the last 50, 60 years. Um, and the question kind of is, well, how long will that continue? To, how long will it continue to be like that, given some of the recent U.S. policy, given the amount of printing, given the, the stimulus packages, and and given that we're looking at inflation rates that we have really never seen before i think that the world expected the u.s to be very responsible with its money and nowadays that's really not necessarily the case so there's two sides to this one is it's looking worse and worse for the dollar in terms of our fiscal policy but on the other side what else is out there that's actually reasonable to be the world's currency do you see any other major contenders here i mean i guess you would look at china as maybe uh, as maybe a candidate, however, their currency is so manipulated, maybe that's not a good option. What, what do you see in terms of the, the global uh, ecosystem there? There's only crypto. Um, and, and, and I would say it's, it's really interesting because the U.S. has printed 20% of all the dollars in existence in the last few years. And um, the idea that everyone hasn't gotten poorer by 20% is just kind of hard to hard to believe, you know, I think there's, there's, there's two ways to look at inflation and, and the, the ways most people in economic circles, Bloomberg, CNBC, you know, the way they talk about inflation is price inflation. What we think of as, um, you know, tomatoes have gone up 1% this year or 5% this year in price. Therefore inflation is 5%. That's fine. You can look at it that way. I think the way a lot of crypto people look at inflation is how much as a percentage of the supply is getting printed. And maybe crypto people look at it this way because crypto prices are so volatile that if you look at the price, you know, beginning of the year to the end of the year, like it could be up, down, you know, it could be deflationary, inflationary. If you're thinking price inflation, that doesn't matter. But the way crypto people think about inflation is, you know, oh, 2% new Bitcoins were issued. Well, that number for dollars is 20%. So now the, the question for America is, is crypto competing with, with dollars? And, and if it is, um, maybe they should shut it down. And, and if stable coins are a proliferation mechanism for dollars, maybe they should encourage it. And this is why I think when we think about our Americans getting left behind, the interesting question is, really you really have to get into the nature of the regulatory infrastructure in the United States and that regulatory infrastructure is a hodgepodge of about close to 60 different regulators that regulate finance every single state regulates 
money service businesses, which is which is what crypto exchanges are classified as. Um, and then on top of that, you have the SEC, which regulates whether it's a security or not. You have the CFTC that regulates futures trading. You have the Treasury, FinCEN, um, the the Bank Secrecy Act, which is which is kind of part of all that, and then a whole bunch of different other authorities. And when you add this all together, you can't really say, is the U.S. pro-crypto or anti-crypto? Because who are you talking about? Are you talking about the Illinois MSB regulations? They might be relatively for it. California is definitely friendly in that regard. If you're talking about the FinCEN, it's a different thing. And so all of a sudden, what 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 is a simple question in the U.K. or Hong Kong or um Japan, you know, or somewhere else, you know, in Japan, there's one authority. All of that is condensed into one. You go to the F- FSA and they're the ones who regulate all finance, you know? So when you go to, the, when you go to America, all of a sudden that question becomes super complicated. I, I abs- that's, that's what's oh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely true. So uh, first off, just talking about inflation briefly. I think with cryptocurrency people, we're list, we're used to looking at things in terms of market cap. What's the total market cap for this, given all of the supply and its price? And as more of the coins issued, that is just essentially it dilutes the power of the remaining yeah. coins. We look at it as a market cap. And it is funny that from the U.S. government's inflation standpoint, it's basket of goods. Well, undisclosed basket of goods is a little bit hard to put, your, uh, put a lot of faith into when yeah. we're seeing money being printed at this rate and and obviously i think something like 20 percent over the last few years uh se- seems v- very reasonable especially when you consider that i believe in the last update um from the government i think it's it listed inflation even at versus the undisclosed p- basket of goods at four and a half five percent pretty safe to say that we're going to be uh, having higher rates than that um as as far as the regular infrastructure goes it is interesting to me to see the way that certain states are are acting and behaving and I think it, it hits a little close to home for me coming from a poker background where I saw essentially everything get banned. Uh, basically, the entire country loses poker. And then we start to see some states add it back in. And we have some states that are very anti-poker and some states that are pro-poker. Obviously, the states with gambling industries like Nevada and New Jersey were the first kind of um, uh, into the mix. And then now we have all kinds of different stuff happening uh, over, over in the poker world. But in terms of cryptocurrency stuff, we look at New York They've been pretty aggressively, I would I would say, kind of against crypto stuff sort of the entire time. Uh, obviously, very pro trying to regulate and legislate and, um, you know, sort of a, kind of been a, attacking a lot of different cryptocurrency companies from the early days of crypto. And then we have states like like where I am, where I reside, the great state of Texas, where the governor said, we want this to be a crypto center. Everyone's welcome to come here. And then we're seeing a lot of um, mining, especially move out here. Yeah. Companies like Riot purchasing uh, Whitstone um, just uh, six, eight months ago and, and then have operations out here. Basically, we see st- certain states kind of being more pro-innovation and allowing businesses to flourish in the cryptocurrency space. And then we see other areas that are basically saying, this is killing the environment. This is a horrible thing, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, you don't get a unified governing yeah. body when you look at America compared to other countries. Yeah. And 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 there are things which are even contested in terms of whose authority is who. So you had a, uh, you had the SEC make some statements, and then you had the CFTC respond on Twitter as a as a quoted tweet saying, "I'm not sure how this is your jurisdiction." 
I don't know if you guys saw that, but uh, maybe we can pull up that tweet in, in the show notes. But there was a CF, CFTC commissioner who, quote, tweeted uh, the SEC and said, I'm not sure how this is your guys' jurisdiction. So even just within, you know, it's it's a very, very decentralized government. You know, it's it's uh, and, and, and I think that's where um, when we think about regulation in the US and and whether Americans are getting left behind part of why they're getting left behind is there's there's just not a lack of there's just a lack of clarity so a lot of crypto companies are are very happy you know a lot of crypto companies are making huge amounts of money we're 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 making a lot of money um you know other companies are making a lot of money a lot of a lot of us are very happy to comply with basically any regulatory framework that's relatively reasonable stable coins exchanges derivatives whatever but if there is none, then there's nothing for us to comply with. And then they can complain that, oh, you know, it's it's like it's like Coinbase and the SEC. Um, the SEC won't say how they view Coinbase. They just say that if Coinbase launches this product, the SEC is going to sue Coinbase. Um, is, is that just a way to get get a fine? Is that, you know, what's going on? And so if there's no clarity around what's the law, if there's no clarity around what's the policy, what's what's the regulation, what's the security, what's not a security, um, all of a sudden you have an interesting playing field where um, you know it's it's not very conducive to building things, and so that's why I think you've seen people building companies outside of the U.S. And building companies that are decentralized. So Compound is a U.S. business, but they're uh, actually decentralized. They they are a uh, they're a bunch of smart contracts, and 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 they've figured out a way to, at least thus far, not be considered a you know a money service business and not be considered a, a financial business anyway. Just you know just they're just putting putting software out on the internet. And so I think you have these two approaches where some people are saying we're going to be totally decentralized. Other people are saying we're going to go completely outside of America. And in both of those approaches, it's really just the market solving around this lack of clarity problem that is the United States. But is Compound decentralized if they issue too many of their tokens and then the founder has to say, hey, give us our money back? Is that is that decent? I don't know. It doesn't seem doesn't seem as decentralized. Who who knows? Uh, but I wanted to bring this back in. I want I want to talk about the stablecoin markets because when you're yeah. asking about this Coinbase product that the SEC essentially said, if you if you go with this, we're, we'll sue you. Um, really, the underlying question I think for all of this is: Are the stablecoin markets risky, and are they perceived as being risky? Because that's kind of the way that. Uh, the government works. They need to try and protect people from what's perceived as risk or is risk. Do you view these stable market, these stablecoin markets as risky? Is there much of a chance of depegging? Uh, I'd like to at least mention Tether for a moment uh, after this. But what's your view on these stablecoin markets? Well, I always find it interesting. Banks banks lend at banks lend uncollateralized. They also lend against houses. Um, they they lend at like. 20 30x leverage ratios using houses as collateral and like in a way what's better collateral a house or a shiba inu well now now we could put our best foot forward here and compare like some of the most liquid volume coins in crypto like bitcoin and ethereum but shiba trades a lot 
you know, at one point it was the highest volume coin on Coinbase. So what's better collateral, a bit of Shiba or a house? Well, I can liquidate Shiba 24-7-365. I can liquidate oh, no. Bitcoin, Ethereum. Don't do it. Don't, I'm don't just saying, do it. I'm just saying, you know. Don't do it. <laughs> liquidate them. They're wrecked, right? So, but but my point is, you, you can't sell a house. You know, you can't be like, tomorrow I have to sell this house in 30 seconds and sold. You know, if you, if, if the price of now prices of houses don't move that much, blah, 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 but they do sometimes move. And when they do move, they can move quickly. And you have to be kind of prepared for those tail, tail scenario events. And the cool thing about crypto is it's really prepared for those tail events because we have these kind of high, high, you know, low probability, high, high price movement events all the time. So, you know, whereas the housing market, it's like, well, one in, you know, 30 years, there's like a crash, right? And so no one's prepared for it because everyone's like, ah, houses, they only go up. It's fine, right? So they never have to stress test. You know, after 2008 happened, I think everyone went back and was like, ah, great. Let's um, forget that happened and carry on. Maybe they didn't do that immediately, but they did that a few years later. So, and that's fine. They're the banking system. They're, they're, they can be bailed out by the government. But when I think about what's riskier, stablecoin lending, stablecoins themselves, you know, versus banks, it's like, hold on, this stuff's fully collateralized. By collateral, you can trade, you know, I mean, in the case of stablecoins, it's, it's usually backed by either dollars in a bank or, or dollar-denominated securities in a bank. Um, in the case of of a lot of the interest bearing products and certainly Flex USD, which is our own stablecoin, it's backed by liquid collateral. You can trade twenty four seven. You can liquidate in large size. You can clear out big positions. If the market moves, you can get rid of it. Um, what are we talking about here? You know, it, it's kind of this interesting scenario where you're comparing. If, if if you're comparing something for something, you have to compare it against banks, which presumably the, the government or whoever's comparing it would be assuming to be less risky. And the stuff that banks are putting money into is, and it's not just houses, but it's also unsecured loans. It's also all sorts of things. Yes, they're, they're going to get bailed out. But the point is their activities are fundamentally at a very, very different level of risk. Um, whereas this stuff is, is, is 24 seven liquidatable. When you look at the the housing crash that happened in in 2008, which by the way, I just want to point out for a moment, I benefited from greatly. I had just had my first bank while I ran up in poker and the housing market in Las Vegas cut over over in half and I bought my first house for th- for about 350k and it was 750 yeah, about 350 and it was it was about 750 just 6 months earlier, but the market o- lost over half its value. And I got a, a, a sweetheart deal because the guy was going broke and I got some crazy wraparound mortgage with no credit, no nothing. I just, yeah, it was, it was sweet. I just scooped in there and got all the value, which was, which is great. Had, had a lot of good times in that house. But yeah, when I look at, provider. there you go. Uh, but when I look at sort of the, when I look at what it took to get a loan back then and then sort of how it has degraded over the years, we're getting back to a point where we're starting to see a lot more arms. We're starting to see a lot more, uh, it's getting easier and easier to get loans when yeah. after the crash. Okay, guys, super serious appraisals are now done by different entities. We're going to have this really tied down. We're going to make it hard to get homes. 
and then slowly it erodes. And my my current house, um, I purchased using what was quote the divorced wife package, where basically I so when you look at me and you look at my income on paper, I I am a very risky individual. Okay, big swings in my in my gains and losses. And three years ago, I won a big tournament called the One Drop, and so I had I think I had about four and a half million in income that year. And then the next year, five hundred k. What happened? What happened here? Yeah. And then the next year, three hundred k or something like that. Let's just I'm just yeah. in those vicinity. So the bank looks at this and go, "Oh, why are your paychecks getting smaller?" And I have to say, "Oh no, I'm my own. I'm self-employed." Burr, burr, burr. Like, right, right. But your 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 paychecks are getting smaller. What happened at your job? And there's no infrastructure <laughs> for. Hey, you don't have a traditional nine to five. I don't clock in. Sometimes I I get wrecked in my job. I lose a bunch of money. You know. Luckily, I had the Negreanu challenge in the last year, so my income is doing pretty well again. But the point is, sometimes I get wrecked in my job. And and they say, well, we're not going to give you any loans because when we see this kind of activity and this kind of declining in income, that's too risky. Okay, I can show the assets. I can say, hey, I have assets that cover the whole value of the house. And they say, no, 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 no. no, no. What about your job, though? Okay. (laughs) So I got the divorce wife package. And the way that this works is I set up a trust and took a distribution and had enough payments in the trust with enough money to show income. And then I use that as income. And I was able to get some weird ass loan to be able to qualify for whatever, you know, and and, and there's two sides here. The first is it's ridiculous that I have to go through these hoops and the system is like this. Um, But the other is you can see there's starting to be some wiggle room. And when there's wiggle room, all of a sudden there's risk. And before you know it, you have 0% down. People are upside down their houses. And then uh, if there is another home crash, then maybe that wouldn't be so hot. Although, frankly, the way things are going, it's kind of hard the 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 fed the fed put exists i mean um the fed is printing all this money and it's going into assets so you know it's it's one of those things you know should they be giving all this leverage well there's a lot of money in the system you know you got to deploy it somewhere and so i i i and i think this is what i think this is what crypto is really um sort of a way out from which is they they're deploying it and they're kind of hoping that you know it's it's going to pump the assets that the fed owns at the end of the day it's going to pump you know stonks which kind of benefits the rich you know and 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 people with assets it's going to benefit um real estate but then there's this unexpected corner where some of the leverage does go and and i think crypto is massively under leveraged there there needs to be way more leverage in crypto um I, I'm not referring to the hot takes hun- today, Mark. Between this and the Shiba Inu versus a house comment, we got some hot takes. Well, so this is the way I look at it. I'm not referring to do we need to go higher than 100x? We don't need to go higher than 100x. We probably don't even need to be at more than 20x, but we need more more notional. So, so what I'm referring to there is crypto is a two trillion dollar industry, right? Well, how much leverage is there in the system? So the the leverage in the system is actually only around forty billion, twenty billion of derivatives, and then another maybe twenty billion or thirty billion of borrow lend. So let's call it forty fifty billion. Well, that's like a couple percent in in equities. The the securities lending alone is like twenty five percent, and then you add on derivatives, it gets you know kind of into the fifty percent, one hundred percent range. So all of a sudden, like you look at crypto and and you look at crypto versus real estate. I mean, how how much of houses are purchased with mortgages, right? A Most lot. of them. Yeah, yeah, a lot. 
lot. No one's yeah, buying I, I, I see. I see sometimes people say, oh, for your mortgage, just deposit it as collateral on Aave and, and borrow the amount. Dude, people are not putting down 300% their home value to be able to take out cash and buy a house. It's just not a realistic thing for most people to do. Most people just don't have the money yeah. to do that. I mean, it makes sense if you're people, rich. People, people who think you can just borrow against your house more to put money on Aave are, in, are, are totally out of touch. You've already borrowed to buy your home. <laughs> you know, for, for the majority of Americans and majority of, of people in high leverage nations, you know, the U.S. being being one um, here in Hong Kong, you, you kind of have to put 50 percent down to buy a house. Oh, wow. And, Hong Kong, and, and, and Hong Kong. Yeah. And Hong Kong real estate is is the most expensive pl- place in the world. So um, so that's kind of interesting. But. I think crypto is drastically under leveraged. And that's what that's one of the problems FlexUSD is trying to solve as well, because FlexUSD is this stable coin and the the it pays interest, you know, three times a day. The source of that, those payments is from providing that leverage to people in crypto. So kind of lending dollars against the, those crypto assets and providing leverage for people who want to trade futures and stuff like that. And at the end of the day, if FlexUSD becomes a $50 billion stablecoin, that's another $50 billion that crypto can use to be leveraged. And that would double the, the leverage in crypto, which would still only get us to like a uh, hundred billion out of 2 trillion. So not even 10%. It's interesting but to think about be the, per- the percentage of the total crypto market cap that is leveraged or, or how much of it is leveraged compared to traditional markets. But is there also a problem here of, the depth of these markets and the liquidity they, they have, and that plays a large role in how much leverage can really be applied. The two are super, super related. So the more leverage you provide, the more liquidity can be provided and, and needs to be provided for the market. So like it, it, if crypto, let, let's say there was no leverage in crypto, right? Every trading firm, every investor that wants to buy crypto cannot use derivatives, cannot use loans, cannot use credit cards, can't use any form of leverage, right? What would the Bitcoin price be? I don't know. Maybe 20K, 10K? I, I have no idea. I'm not. Who knows, sure. right? It, yeah. it, would, it, would be, it would definitely be lower, right? Because people all of a sudden can't use this leverage. Now, one of the cool things is uh, if all of a sudden more leverage exists, people can more aggressively price Bitcoin. Oh, I think it's going up. All right, I'm going to really go aggressive. And, and they can also more aggressively trade it. They can, they can trade it in ways where they're providing tighter liquidity, they're, they're closing arbitrages faster, they're, they're keeping less capital on exchanges and really just trading more on more exchanges. And so professional traders, institutional traders, hedge funds, they all want leverage because they all want to make markets more efficient, provide deeper liquidity, buy more dips, sell more rallies. You know, they want to they want to short things when they get overpriced and and kind of buy them back. They want to buy this against a basket of altcoins. They want to sell altcoins against a, a big Bitcoin long position. Um, all these things are activities that benefit from leverage. And when they get that leverage they can provide more liquidity. So I think that's how you get to deeper order books. It's it's simply for more leverage. And that that makes sense. 
you mentioned Flex USD, which is CoinFlex's stablecoin product. I thought it was interesting about what you guys are doing compared to every other stablecoin, at least that I'm aware of, was that you guys are actually paying out essentially um, something like, I think, I think the most recent number was 17% a year just for holding the stablecoin, which is pretty amazing when you consider that right now for USDT, you get 0% a year for just holding it. Now, yeah. I also do have to say, people should not just be holding USDT. Uh, maybe there are situations where it can make sense, but if your if your investment strategy is you put USDT in a wallet, man, you are you are just you're doing the crypto version of putting your money under your bed, basically. So that shouldn't really be a thing. But there, it is still a good option for people that do need to hold US dollars for whatever reason. And then I also think that there could be some really interesting opportunities to for for DeFi using a currency that's already paying seventeen percent. Um, if we think about a lot of the types of DeFi protocols on some of these other EVMs or even on ETH, um, there could be some really oppor- good opportunities where that can sort of be partnered with other DeFi sort of structures that allow for uh, very high yields. W- what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the cool thing about it, as you said, it's it pays interest just to the token holder, uh, including if that token is used as an LP uh, in an LP pool or a farming pool or a Dex pool. So if if you're if you're um, using an AMM, using a Dex to farm, you're providing liquidity. Um, and for for those that don't know what that means, that really means you, you're taking one asset and another asset. Uh, it might be a stablecoin and Ethereum. You're putting them into a pool, and you're allowing other users to trade against your assets in that pool. And you're getting rewards, uh, which can come in the form of governance tokens or just the volatility of those two assets trading against each other um, gives you rewards from the fees that 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 pool charges. And so if you're doing that, um, you might be expecting a certain amount of APR from the governance tokens or from the trading volatility. And let's say that's 20%. Well, that's great. But if, if FlexUSD will pay you an extra 17% on top, why not have more? And so part of our thinking with this is Tether, USDC are highly used in these DeFi protocols, borrowing tools, lending tools, trading tools, LPing tools, AMMing tools. In these protocols, 0% yield stable coins are being used. And at the end of the day, DeFi is about a lot of things. It's about permissionless trading, being able to ask, swap assets permissionlessly without any central counterparty getting in the way, without using a centralized exchange. It's about um, open access to finance. Everyone can access finance rather than just people in certain countries. But it's also about making money and APR, APY. You know, you want to if you know you want to maximize your return on your stablecoins or your Bitcoin or your ETH or your whatever your BCH whatever. And so at the end of the day. This is one way that all DeFi projects can basically enhance their yield, which is creating FlexUSD pools, getting those liquid. And then instead of paying out you know, huge APYs to users through governance tokens, maybe some of your APY for your project um, basically comes from FlexUSD. And, so, and, and, and it, it effectively makes everyone richer because if everyone was using FlexUSD as, as their de facto stablecoin, um, you know, they'd have an extra 17, you know, it's a variable rate, so it's not always 17%. Right. But they'd have an extra percentage return on top of whatever else they're making. I, I think everyone here on the channel could agree that more yield is better. I'm sure that that's a, a, an yeah. echoed sentiment across all of our viewers. Now, the question really is, where does this money come from? Because I think, and this is one of the things that's gotten people in trouble in the past. I think back to things like BitConnect, where people are getting paid daily 
and they weren't able to understand where the money came from. If you're getting paid money, you need to understand why you're getting paid this money and if it makes sense or not. Can you explain why people are getting paid a variable rate on this flex USD to begin with? So the simple answer is leverage. You're getting paid to provide leverage to traders of futures on CoinFlex. Now, the complex answer is, um, why is you know why is Circle a five or ten billion dollar company, and and they're they're a really valuable company because they take uh, thirty billion dollars, they lend it out at an interest rate, they try to make an interest rate on that capital, and then they take a hundred percent of that interest, and they keep it, and they give none of it to their users. So, all stable coins that want to make money lend out the dollars backing them. CoinFlex is the same. There's a few key differences. CoinFlex doesn't lend in traditional financial markets. So USDC lends in TradFi markets. Uh, Tether lends in TradFi markets. They they buy commercial paper, which is like a, a loan to a big company. Uh, they buy bonds and other types of fixed income securities. This is basically just lending in a banking style way. Now, what CoinFlex does is instead of kind of taking the loyal dollars of crypto natives and lending it to the TradFi guys who already have so much of it. We're saying, look, you're a crypto guy. We're crypto guys. We're going to keep the dollars in the system. And so those dollars go into CoinFlex's system and they the effect that they create is they lower the funding rates on people that buy perpetual futures on CoinFlex. And so if you're, future, if you're familiar with futures trading, um, uh, you know, people who, who go long perps, they go long futures contracts, um, they have to pay a premium, they have to pay perp funding, uh, that perp funding is paid every hour or every eight hours, um, and, and that comes at the expense of your profits. So if you go long, you know, a million dollars of Bitcoin using 10x leverage, um, you hold that position for a while, 5x leverage, whatever, um, at the end of the day, you're paying funding every hour. And where does that, who, who gets that funding? On Binance, on FTX, on every other exchange, the people that can make that funding are basically algo traders. They're basically um, hedge funds, prop firms, institutions, big boys. Um, we've taken that trade, that funding collection trade, and we've tokenized it into a stablecoin. So we've said, look, this trade is really simple. It's, it's, it prints money. We've created an exchange, CoinFlex, which has this trade in a more elegant way, physical delivery, which people don't need to understand, but they can. If they want to read our documentation and understand it, they can. And it enables people to do this trade in a, in a, in a way that has um, lower costs and is much smoother, much more redeemable. And then we built a stablecoin around that trade, that funding collection trade. And as a result, the bigger flex USD gets, the, the the cheaper it is to be leveraged long on CoinFlex. The more leverage capacity on CoinFlex. Yeah, go ahead. So, so here's my question on that then, because in the traditional format, and by the way, I'm not a trader. I, I, I'm pretty, I would say I'm relatively in the know on DeFi. I would say that I am a complete novice when it comes to trading. But normally, funding rates can be positive or negative. And in the scenario where, yeah. in the scenario where the longs are paying in order to be long, they're paying the shorts. So my yeah. question is, if the money that is tr traditionally taken from the longs paying the shorts is now the longs paying the stable coin that you've created, 
that makes sense. The money is coming from there. But then now what is the incentive for the people to short on CoinFlex if they're not being paid what the funding rate is that they would get paid on a competing platform? Well, you're saying that's a, so that's a great question, first of all. Um, so what you're saying is funding flips from from one side to the other. You know, if, if there's a scenario where everyone wants to be long, then it's great for FlexUSD. Uh, if there's a scenario where everyone wants to be short, what happens to FlexUSD? That's now, actually, sorry, that's that's another good question. My question was actually, what's incentivizing the people to be short if they're not being paid funding? But th- th- those, they are, those... they are, they are. Okay. Flex, FlexUSD is short. So FlexUSD is a basket of assets. FlexUSD is holding a basket of assets. It's holding crypto assets and corresponding short positions. For every FlexUSD outstanding, it's holding $1 of, of, oh, of collateral. Oh, I see. So FlexUSD is the short. Yes. Okay. Other people can short as well. Anyone can short. It's an open market. Anyone can compete with FlexUSD. FlexUSD is providing liquidity. Anyone can compete with it. But, I mean, FlexUSD is an account on CoinFlex, effectively. So, so then if so then going back to the question that you originally thought I was asking, which was the smart one, but I'll take credit for it either way. Does can APYs be, become negative if the longs are paying the shorts or how does that mechanic work? Yeah, so the cool thing is um if it happens that funding goes from longs longs paying and shorts collecting to the opposite regime where where longs actually get paid. And this does happen. So for people who don't know, um, when markets become really bearish and everyone wants to short, uh, basically longs can get paid to be to be long futures contracts. And if that happens on CoinFlex, basically FlexUSD has fully exited its position. So so FlexUSD is effectively quoting funding. It's it's market making in this kind of separated funding market CoinFlex has. We call it repo, but it's a a market for leverage really. And if if there's a scenario where everyone's very bearish, those those bearers will be flipping FlexUSD out of its funding collection position to the point that FlexUSD no longer has a position. And in that scenario, FlexUSD won't lose money. It won't be negative yielding APY. It'll just be zero. And it might be zero in all markets, in which case the actual yield is zero, or it might just be in some, in which case it's you know just a really low rate. But it, it doesn't go negative. It's a it's an only up stable coin. What what is the historical average for FlexUSD's AP, APR? I, I I think it's um I think it's around twelve or thirteen percent. I'm I'm not exactly sure, so don't quote me on that one. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. And so also there's there's a bit of a misconception here. This isn't some crypto asset that you're basically saying, guys, buy this and it's going to go up twenty x. You're going to everyone's going to get rich off this. Yeah, this is just essentially owning a coin pegged to the dollar so you have a dollar and you get paid 12 percent a year pretty big difference yep. in those two things and i i think the, the the point should be highlighted um that that's interesting and i think flex usd is is a pretty cool product offering but i want to go back and talk about the bigger stable coins and because i think that that's more applicable to the conversation of this recent stable coin news and I want to talk about the different kinds of stable coins because really the way that I view it, you have sort of three separate different ones or really yep. maybe two, two and then a couple subgenres. Yep. You've got centralized entities that are issuing a token where they're essentially backing the tokens. You have decentralized ones where assets are posted and then loans can be under the first category. You would have USDT, USDC. You have uh, decentralized ones where essentially assets are 
um, locked up and then used to, to mint these tokens. You think of DAI, you think of USDP. Um, and then I would say there's a subset of that where we think of fractional reserves. And I think of things like UST with the Terra network, or uh, I think Frax USD is another one that I'm less familiar with. So when we when we think about the safety of these, the question is always, will the peg possibly break? Because if the peg breaks in a stable coin, all of these things become worth zero. That's obviously the huge risk. I remember a UST scare that happened, I'm going to say four, five, six months ago. Um, and I'm not an expert on Terra by any stretch of the imagination, but the Terra network in some capacity supports the UST. UST is the stablecoin of Terra. Yeah. Yeah. And there came a day during the crash in May where it looked like the UST entire market cap was actually going to su- surpass the Terra market or the Luna market cap. And there was people thought, holy shit. And I, I actually saw that kind of coming. And so I fully exited my Terra positions. Um, a little bit before that, I was doing some Terra stuff on Mirror. And then it, it, there started to be some real uncertainty in the stablecoin. People weren't sure what's going to happen. I think it got down to 92, 93 cents on the dollar. So the real problem is, is there going to be some kind of peg break on one of these in these three, three different categories? And, and one final note on that, when I listened to Gary Gensler talk about, hey, we don't want to have to come in here and say, oh, God, clean up on aisle three. And I think he's thinking about something like this, where one of these major stablecoins de-pegs. People will get completely fucking wrecked if these things depegged. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a disaster. So, what are your thoughts on those different categories of stablecoins, and is that a fair concern to have? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I bought I've bought I bought USDT Tether at ninety two cents before. So, oh, nice. Um, yeah, I mean those those trades were real. They happened. I I bought lots at 90 cents, 92 cents, 95 cents, and then it just went back to a dollar. And, and everyone was like, well, that was weird. Um, so, I mean, um, I think the pegs will, will all be bending and, and in some case breaking. And it's just a question of for the stable coin you're using, is it, is it a brittle stable coin that kind of remains rigid around a dollar and has the risk of totally breaking? Is it a stable coin that's very bendy, but it's never going to totally break? Or is it one that's the worst of both things? It's bendable and it's breakable. And I, I, I think um, I, I think ideally you want one that is, uh, you know, similar in many ways to Hong Kong dollars, where it's, it's hardly bendable. Hong Kong dollars have like a 10 bips redemption per, banned effectively and it's never broken and it's very difficult to break very expensive to break it would it would require some sort of ungodly event in order to break um so i i think you know usdc and tether are very strong in that regard they have a lot of capital behind them um but what are they investing in you know and and in the event of redeeming half their supply what happens? You know, do, do the instruments they get sold have to be? And and I I think one of the things that's most interesting about all this is, um, so there's there's a phrase when you have when you borrow ten thousand dollars, you know, you've got a problem. When you borrow a million dollars, the bank's kind of like very interested in you. When you borrow a billion dollars, all of a, all of a sudden the bank has a problem. Um, and I think. Tether and USDC are almost getting to that point with the Federal Reserve, where um, there was there was a statement the Fed made not too long ago about how some of the assets 
that the that tether held were having um increased price volatility and what the fed said is that they stepped in to make markets in these assets and so these are fixed income boring securities stuff that crypto people would never touch yet indirectly crypto people do touch them because they own tether but what the fed is saying is very profound. This should have been quoted more. I think it got quoted a bit, but the Fed's basically saying that they stepped in and they didn't defend the tether peg, but they defended some of the assets that tether's holding um, and and made markets in them and bought them and sold them and bought them are, and sold you, them. Are you talking about that report that came out in sept- I think September or a couple months ago yeah. where it showed the full breakdown of all of tether's assets, right? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, no, no. This was a statement by the Fed. Okay. Where they talked about, so they talked about money market performance and money market funds, and Tether is now one of the biggest holders of money market funds, or, or sorry, of 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 fixed income securities. You know, it's it's a large player in these markets, and the USDC is a large player in these markets. And so at this point, it's like, what would happen if if someone tried to redeem, you know, a third of the Tethers? They'd have to, would they have to sell some of these instruments? Is there enough liquidity? You know, people people think like, oh, fixed income's huge. You know, yeah, it's huge if you're only looking at treasuries. It's not as it's not as liquid if you're looking at other stuff along the risk curve. And so um this is kind of where Tether is almost be and, and USDC is almost becoming too big for the these these markets. And and maybe some of these markets are not not as liquid as as we thought. And and does that cause a depegging? You know who knows now. So far, it's been mostly a net creations activity. There's there's been very few periods of tether redemptions, like more redemptions than creations, because there's so much yield in crypto. So why would you redeem? Um, so th- that's been great. But but with these, but then you go you go further out. You go to Dai, and it's backed by crypto collateral and and a lot of it's backed by USDC and so now Dai is kind of more mature and, and kind of less adventurous but then when when you go to Frax it's a bendable and breakable one it could be a, a one cent easily um it, it it definitely doesn't track a dollar very well so i but it's a really interesting economic model you know should Frax have been invented yes because now we get to learn what it, what what happens when you have a Frax when you have an Ampleforth all of these things. And do they become replacements for Tether and USDC? I don't personally think so. Um, I probably don't know enough about Luna to say, but I think Luna and Terra and, and UST was probably an improvement over Ampleforth and, 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 and Frax. And there will be further improvements. And some of them will sound completely insane. I mean, Olympus Dow, you know, it's hard to understand and it sounds kind of crazy, but maybe there's something there. So I think, and, and, and this is the problem with a Gensler type of approach, which is if we, if we were all to do things in a Gensler type of way, we would basically be living in a world where all the good ideas are already had. And there's no, there's no innovation in financial markets because um, you have to fit a financial product into an existing box. Where do any of these things fit in an existing box? Stable coins literally had to create their own box. I mean, I I was sitting with Brock uh, when he was telling me about Brock Pierce, the uh, the one of the co-founders of Tether, 
Um, and he was telling me about, you know, oh, we're going to create this thing. It's going to be called real coin. It's going to be called tether. It's going to be backed by a dollar. I was like, dude, the governments are going to hate this idea. It's totally going to be a security, blah, blah. And permissionless innovation, you know, they launched it offshore. They, 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 they just created it. And, and so you have to have people in crypto, you have to have people that have the balls to innovate. And then, and then from there, you know, we see how the governments react. And sometimes they'll hate things and try to shut them down. But if they're popular and high demand enough, it's it's hard to do. Tech has always been a center for innovation, and it makes sense to see to see that happening here. But is it is it really the spot for innovation when it starts to become millions or billions of people's dollars? Then I think is there maybe how much innovation is acceptable? Because I think a lot of people will just kind of ape into whatever, and then when the rug gets pulled, they'll pull a Mark Cuban and go. You know, there really should be some regulation here to protect people like me from getting into iron. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense maybe for the USDTs where they're too big to fail is sort of what you're saying now for that. But how much innovation are we acceptable with for these positions that you know people will enter? And should there be one risky enough, they could lose a lot of money. Well, the funny thing is, th- this is this type of innovation happens all the time in the banking and high finance world, where you have people who will throw together something that's papered over as a PE fund, regulated as a private placement, and 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 set up in a certain way, and then you know investors pour in a million dollars each, it raises three hundred million dollars, and then it loses all of its money because it traded poorly. <laughs> but I now, mean, at least it, the investors were all accredited, right? So we know that it was sure. okay. Absolutely. And so the question that's being tested here is, should should that type of innovation, which sometimes results in disaster, be accessible to the common man? And the beautiful thing about the world is there isn't just one country. So it's not actually Gensler's decision. He can control what happens to America. And then everyone has to put up VPNs and make it really hard for Americans and you know, everyone's got to give up their American passport and never touch the soil in the U.S. and do all these things, right, to 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 try to um, not participate in that system. But at the end of the day, they are one country and they don't control how code is is used. And in many cases of the, these types of things, um, even the founders don't control how the code is used. So at this point, many of these projects have have started out somewhat centralized and controllable, but over time have gotten really decentralized. I mean, MakerDAO is probably the best example where you started out with this kind of elite team that can do anything that's really good. And now it's looking like a bureaucracy, but it's decentralized bureaucracy. It might be slow to change things, but hey, any government that wants to, you know, say, oh, die has to, you know, whatever, make any change. Like, well... How how are you going to do that? So so all of a sudden it it it, it changes into something that um, a Gary Gensler can have a lot of influence, and I think he can try to create he can try to create and nurture an ecosystem where crypto um, may be able to flourish within some extra confines of of regulatory parameters that might um, you know might give a stamp of approval for certain projects. But he has to compete in the global world of regulators. There's Singapore, there's Dubai, there's Bahamas. There's a lot of countries that are starting to look at, hey, we can provide a 
stamp of approval that competes with other countries' stamp of approvals. And then there's CERTIC and auditors and DeFi, and, and they, they're providing their own set of regulatory framework. The, the code is law. And, and if, if the code means you get hacked or rug pulled, that's the law. And so I think you've got these sort of three or four different competing narratives where one of the narratives is, is, is Gensler's, the other narrative is DeFi, and then the other narrative is, is offshore finance. And, and I'm excited because all of a sudden, you know, it's not just the bank model of we can innovate, but only, if, you know, if our customer is, is a, is a mil- multimillionaire. When you talk about code being law, code is only law up to a point because we see time and time again, if the amount of money at stake gets big enough, someone steps in, help me CZ, help me Vitalik, help me whoever it is. Someone needs to step in here and save me. So uh, the the code is law argument, I I, I feel is a little tongue in cheek at this point because really it's code is like until it's it's enough money, then, then the code's not the law anymore. When you talk about the the U.S. essentially, what what they actually can control, the way that you put it is a very positive spin. We're going to win no matter what, and in my heart, I believe that. I, I believe in in the the, the crypto space. I, I think that long term, it's going to win out. But if the U.S. government cracked down hard on a bunch of different aspects of cryptocurrency, what would some of the short term effects look like, and what kind of damage could they do? And another question, kind of as, as a sub question to that. What would the effectiveness of KYC measures look like on the DeFi space? Because I, 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 so there's no way that anyone could have imagined money looking like this 20, 30, 40, 50 years Impossible. ago. Impossible to see coming. But I don't think that it was really supposed to be this thing where you could deposit and withdraw millions or tens of millions of dollars from these various protocols without any KYC whatsoever and move this type of money around so easily. So let's just say that the, the, the government tried to really crack down on these things. Okay, Uniswap. Okay, Sushi. All you guys, everything's KYC'd. What can they really do to enforce that? Because even if you make it on the front end, these are still smart contracts. So if you knew how to operate directly with the smart contract, there's really nothing that they can do. You know, look, Uniswap did a Series A in the U.S. Right? It's a U.S. company, yeah. but and they can they can try and KYC people until they're blue in the face. But they're yeah. they're they're they're, they're uh, yeah. You understand the point I'm making? I, I get the point. And and to reiterate it for your users, um, if the U.S. shut down the Uniswap, viewers, website, we have we have viewers around here. Viewers, viewers. sorry, viewers. We're not um, we're not a crypto exchange, Mark. We're we're actually a podcast. Of course. Um, uh. The, the way I would see it is if if the U.S. were to say, okay, Uniswap.org has to be KYC, everyone has to KYC, someone else is just going to create a new domain. And there there already is them. One, one inch is an aggregator and a lot of its trades trades with Uniswap. There's, there's already alternative front ends to Uniswap that are fully working. So you just go to any of those alternatives, um, more people would spin them up and you just interact with the Uniswap uh, swapping platform and and smart contracts directly uh, with really no change in convenience. You'd literally just be going to a different website. Um, all your liquidity would be still available. Everything would be still available. Um, and, and I think there's a, uh, there's an interesting point when it comes to, I'm not Uniswap. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not in that situation, but I think they have an interesting negotiating position, which is at the end of the day, there's the law. Um, 
And maybe the law says that Uniswap is a, a money service business. And, and maybe, maybe one interpretation is it's a money service business with billions of dollars a day of daily flows. They're in violation of a whole bunch of laws that, you know, you should do all sorts of things. But then there's the practical reality of enforcement. Now, he's, a, he's American. The founder is American in America, you know. So theoretically, enforcement is very, very simple. Um, you take the founder, you throw him in a jail cell or, or you somehow uh, impound his assets or whatever, right? Um, but you do that and, and then what? He can't change the smart contracts. They're, they're on the blockchain, unchangeable. There's no admin key in, in, in his specific situation. Um, and so that's a really interesting negotiating position when you're, um, when you're in discussions with regulators, because what it means is practically speaking, there might be a, a certain way that Uniswap should be regulated, but practically speaking as well, um, who would you need to go to? Well, it's probably you'd probably need to change the Ethereum network. Um, so that's a lot of people. That's that's not Hayden Adams. That that's that's a lot of people running the Ethereum network. Um, all of a sudden, you're looking at a much more international uh, operation. Changing the Ethereum blockchain and and destroying Uniswap is is pretty much impossible. And so, practically speaking, the the imposition of AML and KYC on Uniswap is is totally unfeasible. And this is why decentralized exchange is so interesting. I mean, in many ways, Bitcoin itself should should have been illegal. Um, creating competing money is not something the US has been friendly to, and it's, it's not something the US has ever encouraged, and many countries have discouraged it. They can't shut it down. So that's the leverage, that's the negotiating position that Satoshi started with. And he was afraid even of his own ability to get away with it, which is why he remained anonymous. Well, do you do you worry at all if it sounds well and good to say, okay, if they throw him in jail and they take away all his assets, you know, what good does that really do? Well, what if the government says, boom, justice fucking served, mission accomplished, we got him, boys, and they just stamp a mission accomplished on there and move on. That guy's in jail for the rest of his life. Pretty shit for that guy, right? Well, it's it's really crappy for him, and and he would have he would become, and I think it'd be a really interesting outcome. I mean, I, I say this with no disrespect to Hayden Adams. I'm, I'm sorry for what I'm about to say, but he would become the martyr of DeFi, and I actually think um, it would be really funny because you'd still be able to use Uniswap, but he'd be in jail. So there'd be an interesting lesson there, which is you shouldn't create these platforms. But if you do, there's nothing we can do. Okay, so message loud and clear. If you're American, if you're within their jurisdiction, don't create the platforms because you might get thrown in jail. Um, if you're outside the Ameri you know, their jurisdiction or whatever, um, all of a sudden, you know, it would be it would it would make the point of are these things really decentralized? Very very clear. You know, it, it it's like. It's like when Ethereum was created. When when Bitcoin was created, we didn't know if if we were all going to jail for using Bitcoin. And 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 I remember being in 2012 in the in the Bitcoin circles. Everyone, no one used their real name. I was one of the, you know, I was like, I'll use my real name because 
this stuff is worth fighting for and 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 worth believing in. But in the very very early days of Bitcoin, 2012, and and definitely before 2012, lots of people were completely anonymous because they were like, you know, I don't know if this stuff is all going to become criminalized. And obviously that didn't happen. But when Ethereum came around, Vitalik used his real name. A bunch of other people used their real name. All of a sudden, you had a bunch of people thinking, wow, these guys are insane. They're breaking the law because they're starting a cryptocurrency. It's clearly a currency. It's clearly competing with, you know, dollars and pounds and euros, and they're using their real name. And that move changed everything because the reaction was they became filthy rich and didn't go to jail. And all of a sudden, it changes the precedent around cryptocurrencies. Inventing a currency is now legal. And I think there's, you know, there's lots of things which have been illegal in the past um, and then became legal. You know, it used to be illegal to to print a copy of the Bible in certain places, you know, in, in Rome and, 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 and et cetera. And it used to be illegal to do all sorts of things. Um, you know, ways of empowering yourself, ways of you, building technology for yourself were, were illegal in, in various places at various points in history. And crypto is a way to empower yourself as an individual um, that can't really, in many cases, can't really become illegal, can't really be shut down. Because why would the government knowingly do something that would just embarrass themselves? They're not going to try. It would be so embarrassing. I don't know. I was with you you until that last sentence. Maybe they would. I I think think they're totally fine. I think they're they're totally fine with that. Um, But no, maybe maybe they would. But it sends a very interesting message. I think it sends a very. It does send an interesting message, and it it really shows that the censorship resistance of these major chains is a real thing. And yeah. it, it can't be it can't be messed with easily, and to try and do something that would really disrupt uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum would just take so much money and so much manpower. It would really have to be some kind of multi nation state attack. That you know, w- one thing that I, I think may, might get, be getting lost a little bit in in just kind of the the madness of everything going on in cryptocurrency is as these networks grow, they become more secure, and so. Maybe today these networks could be attacked by nation states if they really teamed up against it. If U.S. and China teamed up to take down Bitcoin, they could do that today. But is that going to be possible? Bitcoin hits 100K or 200K or when's the point where all of a sudden, even if they want to take it down, they can't. A lot of value there that I think might be people might be not realizing is is kind of happening. We talked about this extensively when the Bitcoin market cap was a billion dollars and a hundred million dollars. Like, well... At some point, when Bitcoin goes to $3 million, you know, it, it would cost more than the, the entire, you know, the entirety of the money they could print, you know, it's, it, to, to, to form an attack. It's, it's happening now. It's, you know, already attacking it would, would, would probably fail. Um, and with every year that it doesn't happen, with every year that the prices of crypto goes up, the, the cost of attacking goes up. And, and that's one of the things... That is why proof of work is powerful um, because it, it secures against large, large scale attacks. And, and to be clear, like CoinFlex is, is, is not one of these things like CoinFlex is not a cryptocurrency. FlexCoin is, is, is not a blockchain. CoinFlex is a company that complies with regulations and, and has to follow the law. But the, the space we're in is so exciting 
because it is something that really transcends uh, nation state politics and just gets straight into innovation. I think when when you're thinking about the internet, the internet excelled, the internet did did well because it targeted an area that that wasn't being burdened by um, specific confines and specific regulations and rules. And crypto is growing in that way as well. Nuclear nuclear energy could grow that way if it wasn't so constrained. Lots of things could grow that way, but they're but they're constrained or they're you know based on one locale or whatever. And and because it's international, because it's global, it's connecting all of humanity in this thing that is not constrained. And I think that's super attractive to pretty much everyone around the world. Well, we need to make sure that we don't have nuclear energy because it has the word nuke in it. So it must be risky, must be dangerous. Uh, exactly. Really, really glad to see that we're stamping that, st- stomping that out. I, I would hate to see people get hurt. We don't need yeah. nukes. I'm anti-nuke. Of course, of course. So, I'm glad to hear. Let's move on to our second section today. I wanted to do a little bit of a DeFi intro slash overview for people because we have a, quite a mixed audience here on the channel. We have a bunch of poker fans. We have a lot of, we have a, fair number of crypto fans we've got kind of a mixture where these two things intersect probably have some people in the chat that just like making money i imagine and so i get to see kind of two different sides from the audience when it comes to DeFi and cryptocurrency in general i would say maybe a third of my audience or so actively hates crypto uh, they they talk about how it's a scam i know it's a scam and uh, no matter how many years go by uh, I'd say a third of the audience is probably kind of in the middle. They're not sure. Maybe they've dabbled. They're kind of whatever. And then I would say about a third of the audience is very pro-crypto or even they're only crypto. They're people that in the chat that just say basically, you know, fuck poker. I'm here for the cryptocurrency. Uh, I actually, I remember meeting up with, um, well, actually, I'm not gonna tell that story. That's a story I shouldn't uh, scratch that guy. Scratch that. Point is we have a few different audiences here and I wanted to kind of give a little introduction to DeFi for people because I think that. For the average person, or maybe even the pe- people that are fairly fairly into cryptocurrency but haven't yet gotten to DeFi, there are some serious opportunity points here. And I want to start off with this. Banks offer you essentially $0 for your money. So you put your money in the bank. They say, wow, user, thank you for joining this bank. We're going to give you 0.01% a year just to show how much we care about you. Okay, And then what the bank does with your money is they take that money and they lend it out to other people who pay them real rates. So they're basically just being the middleman between you and and other people that are borrowing your money and they're giving you nothing for it. And what DeFi does is it takes away the middleman mainly. There's obviously some fees and stuff, but mainly takes away the middleman and allows you as the user to directly interact with the people borrowing using decentralized protocols. And then there's another layer, which is they issue rewards tokens. Now, my personal opinion is that a lot of the rewards tokens are going to get absolutely wrecked over the over the next few years. Obviously, people have figured out ways to lock up tokens that have allowed their values to to grow and and limited the supply of them available. But you're basically getting paid from two metrics. One is the the fee for people to borrow your money or trade using your money, and the other is in your reward token. So that's the basic overview on DeFi. Mark, can you maybe break down DeFi for people that are brand new to it and they don't really understand what decentralized finance is? Could you give a little intro for people? Yeah, absolutely. So decentralized finance is, as you said, it's this concept that instead of having lots of middlemen at every step of the way when we're doing these financial transactions, when we're putting money in a bank, when we're borrowing, when we're spending, when we're um, trading, instead of having a lot of, lots of middlemen, uh, and CoinFlex is a middleman, but instead of having these, we can do this directly peer to peer. And so it's kind of the 
idea of Bitcoin applied broadly, not just to money as a, a, a money concept, but to finance as a, you know, a, as a way to decentralize finance. And um, really what it is, is people create smart contracts. A smart contract is um, something with a definable behavior. So if this, then that, you know, if, if I press buy, then I will get X in exchange for Y. I'll, I'll give Bitcoin, I'll get Ethereum. And they create these smart contracts that, that are predefined. They, you know, they behave in very predictable ways. They're not human. Human, humans um, behave often in random ways and, and ways sometimes you can't predict. Um, sometimes they steal money. Sometimes they, they uh, can't be trusted. Sometimes they lock you out of your account. Sometimes they do KYC. Um, well, a bit of computer code is, is always going to do the same thing, uh, generally speaking. And so um, you can create a smart contract that does these very predictable behaviors. And all of a sudden, you can build a financial system on top of that. So if, if I buy, you know, this pool of money will sell to me. If I sell, this pool of money will buy from me. And, and that is what Uniswap is. Uniswap is literally a pool of money that people can deposit into that will make prices. It will say, I'll buy here, I'll sell here. You know, buy down low, sell up high. And, and as more people buy, it moves its prices up. And as more people sell, it moves its prices down. And um, this creates a decentralized marketplace where all of a sudden um, I, as a, uh, a user, know that no matter what, if I, if I buy, uh -oh. I'm going to get delivery. I'm going to get, if I'm buying Ethereum with a USDC, I'm going to get my Ethereum. And I'm going to get it immediately, so there's no settlement delay. And I'm going to get it with certainty that I will not be... Be scammed. Basically, it's it's an immediate atomic transaction where the the act of paying the USDC, you know, the stablecoin, and the act of receiving the Ethereum are are locked and in a singular transaction that's together. So and, and yeah, go ahead. Just just to highlight that point, I think that the number one thing that people might be worried about with this stuff is is it safe? Because people don't want to get involved and end up losing their money doing something stupid or having it stolen. And when people talk about smart contracts, I think for people that have been in the industry a long time and you recognize that, the, the especially for the larger protocols, that these smart contracts are very safe and have been audited by a lot of big teams and you know that they work and they've been used thousands or hundreds of thousands of times. So you know that they're safe and that they work. But I think for the average person, you say, oh, well, your money is, is, is in a smart contract or uses a smart contract for the exchange. How, how can you basically explain to people that smart contracts are safe because sometimes there are errors with smart contracts. Yeah. So the question is also what is safe? Um, and I think um, is bank of America safe is JP Morgan safe, right? Um, I think different people want different guarantees when it comes to their money and, and everyone wants to not lose their money. But there's always different risks when you go beyond just the basic not losing my money. So, so one risk with a bank is that you have your money, you're going to get your money, but right now you can't access it. Maybe it's a weekend, can't, can't access it. Uh, maybe, maybe you've sent the transaction, but for three days it won't settle on the other person's account. Um, maybe we're putting a freeze on your assets. You know, maybe... Maybe there's some compliance check we need to do before before you can send out your money. And so 
these are things which are safe. You know, hey, you have your money. Don't worry about it. But but they do make your money less liquid. They make it less. They make it a bit riskier. Delays are a risk, um, and they also make it less less liquid and less usable. Um, and the the thing people like about DeFi is that it is atomic. It's it's liquid. It's it's instant. It's it's very very fast compared to the banking world. And so all of a sudden, um, let's say let's say you're in a world where any transaction takes three days, right? And then you move into a world where any transaction takes 12 seconds or six seconds or something like that. All of a sudden, the amount of transactions you can do goes up like like a thousand x, you know, ten thousand x, a million times, right? And all of a sudden, you can go from being a normal bank user that is just sending money around, paying people, buying things, selling things, to being effectively the equivalent of a financial institution. We all we all have heard about whether we know them intimately or we just know, heard about them vaguely. We all heard about high frequency traders, Profe- flash you know, boys, flash boys, right? Hedge funds, you know, they do these amazing things with money, programming bots, algorithms that that take over the world. Well, that's Uniswap. You can LP, which means providing liquidity in Uniswap, and you can effectively be a high frequency trader with zero expertise. You just set up some parameters and you're off to the races. And what it does is it's it's not just that, you know, is it safer, is it less safe? Well, thinking about that is is kind of the wrong way to think about it. Because your bank can't let you become a high frequency trader. It's more that it enables you to do things that you just can't do with your bank. Now, the risk of losing your money is there. And and similarly, if you're you know starting to put your money into you know advanced things in a bank, it's there as well. But the difference is, everything is public, everything is audited in a smart contract, everything is out there in the open, and you get this um, market feedback on ways to store your money, and 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 it comes around very organically. And the end result is something where you can say, oh. This protocol has 5 billion in it. It's been around three years. This one has 10 billion in it. It's been around four years. And that's that's a lifetime in DeFi. It's been around six months. It's been around two years. It's been around whatever. So-and-so trusts it. This person trusts it. That person with reputation at stake, real world reputation trusts it. And all of a sudden you can build a sense. And you know, it's a lot harder than building a sense of, oh, this is regulated by the FDIC. This is this is a U.S. A large U.S. bank. I can trust it because the Fed's going to bail them out. That's really easy. This is this is definitely going to take you more time. But thinking about it that way is also the wrong way to think about it because a bank might take you know thirty minutes to set up an account, zero minutes to due diligence them because you can trust any major bank. But but it and it takes maybe thirty minutes to set up an account, and then the rest of your time you don't have to do anything. But it doesn't let you do the things that DeFi does. And so that's the power of it. Right. The, well, the power of DeFi, I think, is clear for people. You're using your money to make money at rates you simply can't do using your bank. But I, I think the security side is really more of the question. I think when I look at smart contracts or if I'm considering uh, joining a, a protocol, I think the major at things I look at are TVL. You mentioned so TVL means total value locked, total amount of money in the protocol. Uh, as that number rises, 
it basically means that it's more safe because there is a larger pot of gold for people that could potentially exploit the contract and make and take the money out of it. So if you see a protocol and it has a million in it, or you see a protocol has a billion in it, the billion one is going to almost always be more, well, I should say on average will be substantially more safe. That's the way to phrase that. So the first thing is TVL total value locked. The second is the, the team, the founding team, as well as the notable names on the project. If you go to Twitter and you see very reputable people are following a project or they say that they founded a project or they're involved with the project, then there's going to be a security there as well. You know that they'll do the right thing and that they probably went through the right process to set up the, t- set up the protocol. The third thing, you, you mentioned it briefly, but you know how long has it been around for? The longer something has been around for, the, the more safe that, it's, that it will be because there's been more chance for people to try and exploit it. And then finally, uh, the audit team. Uh, the the people that actually audit these protocols and post them. I was actually getting made fun of by one of my friends. Uh, his name's Jason Mo. He was in this podcast at the start. Um, you, you you know Jason. Uh, I I was mentioning something about an audit on a protocol, and I said it's unaudited, and he went, "Oh, it's unaudited. Oh no, it's unaudited." Oh, and I said, "Thanks, Jamo. You're really making me feel good about my money here. As I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do with my money, it's just like berating me for 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 trying to pretend it or trying to figure out if something's audited or not." Um, but anyway, so those are all things to consider <laughs> when, you're, when you're joining a protocol. Um, uh, okay, so great. moving on from the security aspect side of things, when when we look at DeFi, I think that the first thing that people kind of have to, to have to think about is what are what are my goals? And there's a lot of different strategies that you can go with, but you kind of have to boil it down to the first most important goal is what do I want my asset exposure to look like? Because there's all kinds of farms out there you can. You can do more borrowing lending. You can do more LPing to allow people to trade. You can do all kinds of different things here. The first question I have to ask is, well, what assets do I want to hold? Now, for me, I've always wanted to kind of prioritize holding Bitcoin and Ethereum. Obviously, those prices go up over time. But let's just say that you think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are scams, or you think that they're going to go down a lot, or you think that um, the market is, you think that basically you think that the price will go down. Well, you can actually do DeFi and have zero exposure to Bitcoin and Ethereum. You can just farm with US dollars. And I'll tell you right now, the amount of money you can make farming US dollars online is tremendously more than you're going to get in any bank account for sure. And and realistically, more than you're even going to get in total market ETF type of plays. You can you can easily do with stable coins in today's market, 10, 15, 20, 25% plus in some of these farms. So in terms of asset exposure, I think a lot of people might not realize all of the options that they have and that they don't have to own Bitcoin. Your entire position could be US dollars and you could be doing DeFi online. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that is that is one of the things that's drawing so many people in because all of a sudden it's a way to really the the thing you have to understand is why is that the case? So like there's a hundred trillion dollars out there. Why are people able to make so much money farming dollars? And you know, farming dollars means providing them as liquidity um, in ways where you have no exposure to crypto. Why, why? Why can you make so much money? Why can you make between ten and a hundred percent, or even sometimes higher than that, depending on how risky the thing is and how new it is and whatnot? How how, how is that possible? And so I think the you know because because at the end of the day, it's like. What market structure, what problem is creating this, this reality? And, and part of the problem that's creating this reality is that just banks aren't competing in DeFi. And so you have a market where 
in 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 other markets there's demand for leverage there's there's demand for liquidity and banks lend to hedge funds that provide those markets and provide that liquidity and in some cases banks banks lend and they provide liquidity themselves directly they'll trade on exchanges they'll trade uh against other banks they'll trade against other hedge funds um and they'll buy things and sell things that consumers are buying too um and they'll lend to consumers so banks are very, very involved in all parts of the economy in dollar lending, but they're not in DeFi. And this is the opportunity that crypto is creating. It's creating a pocket of the economy where because of the nature of it being decentralized and because there's now a form of dollar that exists within crypto, which is a stable coin, it's now possible to compete with banks and the Fed um, in providing liquidity and providing leverage and providing dollars without having them getting involved. And there's slow ways where they're kind of, you know, people are borrowing from banks in order to do this and that sort of thing, but they're still not directly involved. And I, I think, I think we might have several decades where they're not involved. And as long as there's yield from activity, volume, leverage, you know, you know, new tokens, et cetera, that yield will exist. Now it might go down, it might go up, it might do all sorts of things, but but that yield will exist. Be- and 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 a big part of that reason is that there's no competition for providing it. Banks aren't competing with each other even, it feels like either, because they kind of just don't have to. Oh, you, yeah. your checking account offers 0.0001% interest. That's the standard, everyone's doing it. Well, no, no one has to compete with that, with those rates. And so basically you just get screwed as the user. You're just getting, if you have money in your checking account right now, you're getting screwed straight up because you just don't make any money on that. And they're using your money to make money. So you should be getting a cut of the money that your money is making. And DeFi allows you to do that. I think that that's, that's the main, the main point here. Um, Now I will say in the asset exposure conversation, I would, I would strongly recommend people having Bitcoin and Ethereum. I've said that for so long. I've, I've, talked about bitcoin since lord knows how many years now and i always get the comments of oh yeah it's irresponsible to tell people to buy bitcoin burr, burr, burr. okay at some point guys at some point some number of years some amount of money we're gonna have to just take a step back oh maybe that wasn't so irresponsible now was it bitcoin can obviously crash pretty hard a lot of the other coins can crash pretty hard as well but in the long run these things went over time there's only going to be 21 million bitcoin i don't have to give the normal spiel but if you don't like that, if you don't want that, you don't have to do it. You can still make money, way better rates in your bank account by by um, participating in these stablecoin opportunities. And 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 I I think this is one of the most undervalued um, opportunities in the whole world because when you when you think about the size of the internet, it's around communication and it's around um, you know now it's around a lot of other industries as well. But when you think about money and the providing of leverage and, and, and money as a concept itself, money is half of every transaction. It's, it's literally we spend 8 to 12 or 16 hours a day working to try to get money. And then we spend the rest of our time trying to spend money. Um, and, and, w- and we spend lots of time thinking about how we invest money. So if you think about money, it is, it is literally something we're spending, um, you know, more than we, we sleep. We're spending most of our waking hours, 
either making or spending or or investing. And crypto is is creating opportunities for um, basically new money, but then it's also creating opportunities for ways to deploy that money into things that have no middlemen. And all of a sudden, you're opening up a sector that manages the whole world's economy to you know, d- distributed, d- decentralized, you know, intermediary less architecture. And, and why shouldn't this be worth a hundred trillion just as, as a DeFi sector? You know, why, why shouldn't the sector of DeFi and, and, you know, um, crypto inf- infrastructure companies be worth a hundred trillion dollars? Because that's, that's the market for money. This is, you know, this is competing with that and, and it will, it will overtake it. And so it's, it's a very interesting, I think, um, architecture that's emerging where, um, people that are getting into crypto now, but also DeFi now. And, and again, you can get into DeFi with, with dollars. So you don't even have to take, uh, the equity risk, so to speak. You don't even have to, have to take the price risk of, of crypto going up or the DeFi tokens going up. But people that are getting in now are really getting in on the ground floor of something that is um, changing the way everyone's going to end up thinking about finance. And and I think it, you know we're at the very early stages of that, and and it's going to get really interesting. What are your thoughts on these lending pro- these lending offers like what US like what Coinbase had for USDC, and I think Gemini has the Gemini Dollar one that's something similar, where they offer you something like five to ten percent on your your dollars a year what do you think about that as an option for people versus learning how to do things themselves learning out how these ecosystems work and and getting and entering let's just say for the average person because let me give you an example so my fiance her dad in 2013 or 14 or whatever it was i was talking about bitcoin constantly and he said you know what Doug? i believe in bitcoin i'm going to buy some bitcoin okay and he bought 10 bitcoin at i don't know 400 or whatever it was at that point and it was a great trade, but then he, he had it on the exchange and he didn't know how to take care of it. And we know where this is going. Yeah. And then I think about, well, was that a mistake on my part? Because obviously for older people, they're not going to have the ability to really correctly, you know, to correctly do things or the understanding of how to keep it safe or understanding where to put it or all this kind of, these kinds of questions. Should noobs be just, just take their 8%? on these sites or should they actively be trying to learn and do this themselves? And maybe is there, is there a conversation that has to be had? And I don't ever hear anyone talk about this, but are you just too fucking stupid to DeFi? Is that, is there, is there a line and you have to ask yourself, you have to just look yourself in the mirror and just say, I'm not able to do this. And then just give your money to Gemini or how can people sort of differentiate if they're capable of getting involved in the space? Well, there's another question as well, which is maybe you're too poor, uh, which is uh, on on some platform. Certainly for ETH, ETH is radically rapidly becoming a whale only platform with their their fees. And so, um, I remember I was I was experimenting with Ave, and I had I had a few Ethereum in in Ave, and uh, the fee to withdraw that was going to be like two thousand dollars, and and it was because the network was congested and it was a complex transaction, and I was like, well, this is kind of crappy. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it depends. I think um anyone anyone young 
generally is, is not too stupid because it's really an investment of time. And why would you not invest time in something that could, if you get good at it, become your whole career? Um, so there's that, but also look, the returns are incredible. Um, you know, if you can hold money in the bank and get nothing, if you can hold money in Coinbase and get a little bit, uh, or, or, or some of these other platforms, um, and then if you can hold money in DeFi and get quite a bit, um, you know, FlexUSD is, is, I think, pretty competitive with these things, but, but any of the other platforms, the farms, et cetera, um, it makes sense to spend the time to learn it. Now, I think for everyone, they have a, a different level of time. So it, I, I really don't view it as um, someone is too much of a noob because the, the tools, MetaMask, you know, all these tools, all these tutorials are getting better and better and better. So, so I, I don't think it's a function of whether you're um, highly intelligent or, or not very intelligent, a, a crypto expert or a technology expert or a technology phobe. Um, it really just depends on whether you have the time and, and some things don't take a lot of time, you know, sticking your money in one of the websites that pays 8% or 4% or something doesn't take a lot of time, but might have more risk and might have, um, less transparency around it. Um, using some of the DeFi platforms, uh, might have a lot of transparency, but it might take a lot of time to understand it. And I, I think it's actually, as the DeFi ecosystem matures, it's becoming less and less and less in terms of the time needed to understand it. FlexUSD is really easy to mint. Um, the things you can do with it are very easy to do. Um, the things you can do with things on, on many blockchains are getting easy, easier and easier. So I really think um, no one's too stupid for it. Uh, some people are too poor for certain networks, unfortunately. Hopefully Ethereum can figure out that problem. Um, it's been a problem for quite a while, but, uh, but a lot of networks are lower fee, Matic, smart BCH, um, uh, avalanche is, is doing great things. Um, these networks are all, uh, much lower fees and, and there's so many people that will teach you how to do it. So it's, um, it's really something everyone should have some time in figuring out. That leads nicely to my next question, which, which is, are all these EVM chains going to last so we have so many different chains now where you're basically able to farm on them for way cheaper than you can on ethereum which which is great i mean people get priced out in ethereum some of the transactions are ridiculous sometimes i look at this it's oh five hundred dollars to just do this transaction yeah. uh, <clears throat> you have to have incredible scale to be able to make that cost efficient whereas you look at for example binance smart chain i was getting a haircut a few months ago and my hairstylist uh she's the younger girl she was farming on pancake swap. We were both in the same auto cake pool. That's yeah. not, yeah. she's, she's not farming on convex, you know, yeah. not going to happen. So she's probably never used Ethereum. No, I, I, I would, I would guess she, ne- I, I, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine she's yeah. used Ethereum. It just, it, I've had many similar situations. Yeah. So that makes sense for now, but longer term is Ethereum going to actually solve some of these problems with scale and a big problem for Ethereum is the price just keeps always going up. And then you also have more people using the network. And I think a lot of Ethereum maxis will say, well, that just means people are using it. So it shows that there's the demand there and it's actually a good thing or whatever kind of coping mechanism you have to have built in to, to explain why your transaction's $800. But once Ethereum does start to solve some of these problems at scale, do we still see long-term value in some of these chains like 
uh, you know, Solana, I guess, would be the best example of one that might still compete, but Avalanche or Phantom or uh, these types of, or even even BSC, even Binance Smart Chain. Do you, do you see those continuing to last and have value moving forward? Yeah, so I think philosophy around scale and how scale relates to decentralization is really important here. And um, BSC kind of came in with this mentality of, well, how does decentralized people, do people really need it to be? And maybe if we have 21 nodes that are all kind of semi-controlled by Binance, um, people won't care because they can do cheap transactions. And that, I think, worked from the user's perspective, like lots of users migrated over, but lots of developers, um, because users at the end of the day are, are spending a small fraction of their time. Developers are spending all their time their, their resources are literally, you know, in the case of some developers, they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. In the case of others, it's millions a year. So they're investing a million plus a year in time. They don't want to invest on a, 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 an ecosystem that's centralized, right? So you have the problem there. Then you have Ethereum, definitely decentralized, but it's expensive. Um, then you have alternatives like Matic, which recently did a 30x raise in the minimum GUI price, so the minimum price per transaction, which which really I think demonstrates um, a lack of conviction around the one of the bit best reasons to use Matic, which is low fees. And you saw a drop off in the activity on Matic after that. And so I think there's lots of philosophies tr- being tried out. Um, uh, you know, Bitcoin Cash, uh, Smart PCH is one that's being tried out. AVAX is one that's being tried out. Um, there's the, the Solana approach is, is a very, very radical approach, which is let's go way further than everyone else has gone, not just on fees, but on scalability and go to sub one second block times. And once you go sub one second, because of how fast it takes for data to travel around the world, all of a sudden, it's very, very hard to become decentralized at all. And so you can have these outages. But when things are not having these outages, it's high, it's very high performance. So I don't think all of these EVMs are going to last. I don't think all these smart contract platforms are going to last. I think they're go- the activity is going to centralize around one or two or three, um, probably one or two. And I think what the market is trying to figure out right now is there's decentralization, there's low fees, and there's scalability. And then and then there's things like users and 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 volume and TVL and all that stuff. But at the at, at the end of the day there's decentralization, scalability and low fees. Which one is more important? What well, what matters most? Do you go the trilemma Solana approach? Problem. Yeah, that's the trilemma problem. And I think Ethereum has decentralization, um a bit of scalability and really high fees. Solana has really low fees, really really high scalability, and almost no decentralization. B- BSC is kind of similar. Um, and other chains are having different approaches. My view is one of the problems that Ethereum has is not a technical one, it's a philosophical one, which I think a lot of the, the, the old guard of Ethereum, the people that are sort of safeguarding its development and and shepherding its its growth and kind of making decisions around how that how that protocol's changed i think those people buy the belief that well everything should uh you know fees should go up so that more value can accrue to the token the eth token itself and i think that that's 
that's maybe the wrong philosophy. You know, I think a better philosophy is you keep the fees low, you let users scale to billions of users, the whole world. And then, and then, you know, a, a tiny, tiny transaction tax, tiny, tiny fee on billions of users is the ecosystem that has the biggest network effect and the most value long-term. So that's a good point. And maybe the people that are safeguarding the Ethereum development uh, timeline or what it, procedures, maybe those people are, are not viewing this in the same way, or maybe they're more viewing Ethereum as sort of Bitcoin like in a way that is becoming more store of value yeah. in a way. I do think that the moves that Ethereum is making towards the reduction in in minor rewards moving over to proof of stake and trying to become deflationary seem awesome for token price value maybe that's what this is really being driven towards is let's try and make ETH as expensive as we possibly can Uh, but but as long as ethereum is doing that then these other chains are going to have increased volume because yep you know the thing is it's bad for market share it the, the thing is people people need to be able to to actually partake in this and i have so many friends that want to get involved in in this space and they say oh can i do some ethereum stuff no you can't yeah you you figure find something else and you literally can't yeah you can't there's just no way what's the minimum amount of money you think you have to have to 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 do DeFi on ethereum realistically two hundred thousand. i was gonna say 100k so yeah i think we're thinking similar things Maybe a hundred K. That's insane. That's so much money. I mean, even let's say you're a millionaire putting 10%. Let's say, let's say you have $1 million net worth, liquid assets. You're too broke. You can't put 10% of your portfolio in something you don't understand yet. You're too broke. Yeah. So, so it's a problem. It's a problem for everyone. It's definitely a problem for the guy with 10 K. Because he would literally have to invest all of his stuff and he wouldn't be able to move it very quickly to new projects and new farms and new new ecosystems and new things because the transaction cost for moving it wouldn't make sense. You'd have to hold it in one thing for six months before you can justify the redemption fee. So it's a problem. It's a huge problem. I, I think um, I think Ethereum is is missing a trick here. I think a lot of people are going to make a ton of money from creating alternatives and, and it'll be a battling of minds. It'll be a battling of minds and a battling of philosophies. And the beautiful thing is unlike systems where you can't get out, unlike regulatory systems and, and, and private company walled gardens, you know, Apple or whatever, where there's no choice or limited ability to exit. Exiting is very easy. You can sell your Ethereum or you can switch platforms to a different platform where you can do these things. And so that's the cool thing about crypto, which is Ethereum may make mistakes, but crypto won't. Crypto will figure it out because, you know, someone's going to have the right philosophical approach. So, And there's always going to be innovation in the space because yeah. when there's gobs of money at stake, people find ways to innovate pretty easily. Yeah. All right, that, that, that brings us to the end of uh, the, the questions that I had here for you today and sort of the topics I wanted to discuss. So... Um, before we we call the day is there anything else that you want to talk about or uh any shout outs or anything you want to let the good people on the on the the channel know no i mean uh check out uh check out coinflex.com we're on telegram as well um you know check out all of our products and and let us know how we can you know build more things in DeFi and how we can 
you know, make all this stuff easier. And yeah, you know, to everyone in, in looking at crypto, you know, it's it's not a scam. It's uh, it's amazing. You should build in the space. You should uh, put all your money into, you know, stablecoin, uh, you know, related products. And and you should you should be you should be thinking about how you can devote all of your waking hours to uh, to crypto things. So. Oh, always great to say something's not a scam. Put all your money in it. In it. That has never gone badly for people. And, uh, you know, great, great advice here from Mark. Mark, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate having you on and the conversation today that we had some good stuff. And hopefully that was insightful for people with uh, regards to CoinFlex, but also all the stable coins that we talked about and just DeFi in general. Awesome. Thanks. All right. That's going to be it today, guys. Thank you for joining in. Again, I'm going to be gone until late November, but I've got some good news for you. When I get back, I'm going to be starting up a weekly crypto show. I'm going to be doing a podcast podcast roughly once a week, and I'm going to start doing crypto show as well. I'll probably do that one on Friday, so I'm still thinking about schedule. Either way, that's in the on the docket, as they say. And uh, yeah, that's going to be it here for me today. So if you guys enjoyed this podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button, join, follow, so you do not miss our newest podcast, and our guests. I'll see you guys again soon. Getting married. I'll be married next time you see me. Peace, everybody.